You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded July 31st, 2019, episode 52, Pain-Free Campaigns. We talk about campaign board games, specifically for two players, as well as some reviews and gaming discussions. Hello, and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 52, Pain-Free Campaigns. What makes for a good campaign game? From Hamilton, Ontario, I'm Sean, and here with me, live and direct from Windsor, Ontario, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo T. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your game and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to welcome everyone to the lobby here on Twitch. We start live every Wednesday night at 9.30pm Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop and continue on even after the double bells for more off the books after show. And for those of you who aren't here live, you can listen in on that after-show audio, as well as our audio from the front desk, our pre-show banter, by backing our Patreon. As a thanks for supporting us, you can also get other cool stuff like access to our private Discord channel where you can chat with us and other fans of the show, pre-production show notes, behind-the-scene blog posts, and more. So tonight, besides talking about campaign-based board games, I finally published my review of Gokuku, so we'll be talking about that. And I've got some more new-to-me games for our Tabletop Gaming Weekly segment, uh, where I'll be talking about Chocolatiers, Bastille, Quad Heroes, and more. We love interacting with our listeners and viewers. Each week, we're going to highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. We'll share some feedback we've received, comments on our content, and maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of over the last week. We want to share what people are saying, whether that's positive or negative. We get better with your comments and suggestions, and if you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. Uh, you can also hit us up on social media where we can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. I uh, just have a few short comments this week. Not a lot going on. First up, I've got Chris Groff had a comment on my last Tabletop Gaming Weekend Weekly blog post. The Duke is just so good. Only Tom is a nice Duke light experience and War Chest has some cool stuff going on, but neither of them scratch the same itch. The combination of straight up strategy combined with that gambler's chance tile draw, just awesome. Love this game. Thanks, Chris. I tend to agree. I'm a huge Duke fan and I do love War Chest, but it's different enough to stand alone on its own. Now, Rob Barrett had a comment on the same article. Gizmos is a blast. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I totally agree. I had, I've had i had great success with that game, both with gamers and non-gamers. Mike Diabaggio left a short but positive comment on our tips for starting your own gaming club Ask the Bellhop article. He writes, good advice. Thanks, Mike. Short and sweet. Before we move on, I just want to thank everyone who comments, emails, replies, and engages with our com- content. We record here live Wednesday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, and we love people who drop in and take part in our chat room, The Lobby. If you're here live, we continue the show after the double bell in an off-the-books after show, as well as occasional special features, sometimes making it onto YouTube. So, people here are already talking about business cards. We had a little uh, rant on this before in the pre-show, talking about uh, the upcoming Gen Con and Origins uh, trips and business tours, so there's a whole lot on... Uh, I know uh, Date Major Kayla is saying that if she gets her writing adventures published, she's looking for a classic Victorian business card made. So, if you're a designer, jump into our chat room and you can find Major Kayla in there and send her some options. 
I do wonder if there's something that distinctly makes a Victorian business card different from a modern business card. Well, there were actually reception cards. So when you when you arrived at someone's house uh, and were brought into uh, brought into the waiting room to, to await, you would leave a calling card, literally, uh, that would be brought up to announce your presence. So okay. uh, something along those lines, I expect. Very cool. So tonight we're talking about board games with campaign elements. Uh, this is going to include my thoughts on what makes for a good campaign game. Now, the question we'll be answering, though, that comes from one of our fans is looking specifically for two-player games. So one of the things I would like from you folk in the chat is to help us out by catching any games we miss. We'll be back stopping by the lobby a few more times throughout the show. We're here to answer your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or click go to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Ask the Bellhop. Our social media works too. We're everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop in one word. Well, the best way for questions to come through is through the website so they don't get lost. I'm not going to say no to a question asked anywhere, as tonight's question proves. Today's question comes from the Tabletop Bellhop Hop Facebook page, which all of you already like, right? Kelly Jones writes, what are your suggestions for a good campaign-style game good for two players? Well, thanks for the question, Kelly. Now, before we dive into a bunch of two-player campaign game suggestions, I want to take some time to expand on this question and talk about what I think makes for a good campaign game, regardless of the number of players. So to be clear, let's make sure we define campaign game. This is a game that plays out over a number of episodes or sessions, working towards a goal or telling a story. Similar to how often in an RPG, you're playing out a long story that beyond, goes beyond just one night session. You don't get to throw the ring in the volcano in one sitting. Now this is different from the majority of board games, where each time you sit down, you're starting from scratch. There's no history of the games played before, other than maybe finding some old marked up score sheets you forgot to throw out. So to me, there are a few things that make a good campaign game, things that a good campaign game has, some qualities they have. Because just having a set of scenarios that you play in order is not enough for me to consider a game, even a campaign game, let alone a good one. Now, while I do enjoy a game that has a good story that you learn as you play, a game needs more than that to be a campaign game to me. And this means invoking the concepts of history and future. What you do has to matter. Yeah, exactly. Because to me, the most important thing is that what happens in one game affects future games in some way. Now, that's going to be vague because a lot of games do this in different ways. Uh, they could be items that are found in one scenario carry over to the next scenario so you can use them. It could be that the story just branches and depending on how well you did in one scenario will change your options for what to play in the next scenario. You might actually destroy something, an item, a place, a character in the game and due to that, that thing never shows up in the game again. Uh, the game could unlock new things based on what you do. So because you locked in, looked in the cupboard, you now have the key. And then because you have the key, you can now do the new thing. Um, players may even be required to write on the board or change a map or permanently upgrade a card or ability. So it's like that for all future plays. Like these are all ways in which one play of the game can change future plays. Especially destroying things. Something Mo takes an eager delight in while others blanch at the thought of tearing up a piece of a game. Yeah, that's this is the perfect example of a legacy game, right? I love legacy games. I love the fact that what I do in a legacy game matters so much that I make an irrevocable change to the game itself. 
like not only might what you do come into play later, but what you did permanently changed the game. Like I can't go back. The cards ripped up. This is a done deal. Or I've written on the map or I've changed the thing or I've named the character. Those are the things I love about legacy games. I have to say, I think if we if we want to take this to the next level, if if we get the studio, we need a special camera for those legacy game nights that is focused on a shredder in one corner, <laughs> so that they can we can live stream the actual physical mechanical shredding of a card in the event it occurs. I, I, yeah, but I like ripping them. I'd have to rip them first. I, I, I want well, that you do, manual. You do the you do the tear in half. Yeah, then shred, and then yeah. and then pour it in, and then put it in there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all for that. That, that, that. That'll be a plan for the future. We The shred cam. Yeah. It'll be like, patrons only get to see the shred cam. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so getting back to the topic on end. Uh, another thing I look for in campaign games is some form of advancement system. Again, this can be pretty vague because lots of games do this different ways. Now, in many campaign games, you play a character of some type. Um, I want a way for that character to grow change, unlock new abilities, get stronger, basically, to use the RPG term, level up. Now, improvement, though, isn't just limited to characters in games. In other games, you might be improving your city, or it could be your fleet of ships or your army, as that case may be. What I want to see is some kind of reward for playing the scenario that makes the players better equipped to handle future and harder scenarios. Now, the last thing is that choices are very important to me in a campaign game. Now, this ties into all the things I already talked about. I want choices, and I want those choices to matter. The choices I make now while playing the game right now should affect future games. Now, again, this could be branching scenario paths, or it could be multiple character build options. I'm not getting into the specifics of how you have to do it, but I want to feel I have some control over my destiny, and I'm not just along for a ride sitting on the, the railroad as uh, the RPG turn. I want to be able to take the train off the rails. You know, many gamers are surely familiar with this idea, both in the negative and the positive. The idea of railroading and limited options to force a character through a set of tasks or giving real choices and expanding both the options and the outcomes. Yeah, because the best campaign games are going to have all of the above aspects. You're going to have many choices to make, and the results of those choices will have long-term ramifications. What you do now will affect what happens later, and through all of that, you're going to improve your character. Now, again, your character could be a civilization, your pirate ship, your boat, whatever that happens to be. And there's our slightly less than brief explanation of campaigns. <laughs> all right, so now let's get back to Kelly's question. They were looking for some great campaign games that play well with two players. That's a little tougher because most campaign games, you need more players than that. And that's also the reason I did not, I'm not going to talk about RPGs at all. There are two player role playing games out there. I've looked into them. I have yet to see a two player role playing game that is actually a campaign game and not a one shot or a couple sessions. Yes, you can play Dungeons and Dragons two players, but the game is not optimized for doing that. So even in the board game world, limiting things to two players makes it tough. Uh, campaign games generally involve a larger group. But here are some of the best campaign games I've played that I think will work great with just two people at the table. So I think any regular listener will know what we're about to say, and it's not Azul. <laughs> Very true. Azul is not a campaign game. Once they release Azul Legacy at Gen Con 2020. No, I'm just making stuff up now. That's not necessarily true. So yeah, we'll start with the elephant in the room. And that's the big 20-some pound box back there. That's Gloomhaven. 
Uh, this is by far my number one recommendation for a two-player campaign game. Uh, it's been the number one game on Board Game Geek for, what, two, three years now? Uh, it's the number one thematic game, it's the number one strategy game, and the number one game overall. And I've got to say, having now played it for over a year on Friday nights, its reputation is well-deserved. Uh, we play Gloomhaven once a week. As you all know, we live stream our games on Twitch every Friday, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. We release those on YouTube, and something else that proves the popularity of Gloomhaven is the amount of views those videos get compared to what we're recording right now. So while the Bella plays four players on the tabletop every week, we've talked in the past how that is not actually the ideal group size. Uh, while three generally comes out as the best, two-player is overwhelmingly recommended by a large margin on BoardGameGeek as the recommended uh, player count. And I swear on BoardGameGeek at one time, two was the best. I, th I, I, think, I think that it changed. It has shifted. Because I looked and I'm like, I swear it said two player best, but now it says three. To, but to, still, be, honest, to be honest, I think the, the way they, they run that poll for that particular uh, feature of the site is sort of questionable anyway. So. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but it does play well too, which is the point. Plus, Gloomhaven's just really good. And it is the closest you're going to come to an open-ended campaign with lots of choices without switching to a full role-playing game. Now, there is the one problem with Gloomhaven. It is prohibitively expensive. But I gotta say, I don't think any other game is going to give you the long-term playability, especially at this quality that you're going to get for Gloomhaven. It's the bang you get for that buck, and if there are two of you playing, consider splitting on the cost. Like, we talked a few minutes ago about all our requirements for a good campaign game, Gloomhaven hits every single one of those. Yeah, and now let's not forget that while expensive, the game has been dropping below the $100 mm -hmm. mark for a while now, and given the amount of content... The cost per session is really quite low. Uh, and if you follow at tabletop underscore deals, you'll find the best price for it. Yeah, which right now is $95. Oh, I forget where I shared it today. It was Game Nerds, I think, has it for 95 right now. But under 100 is pretty regular now. Yeah, so. yeah any more under 100 is seems to be the almost retail price. So now that we've gotten past the, the giant box that is Gloomhaven, we'll move on to some other games. And the first one I'm going to mention is actually the game I played as a group, the campaign game I played before switching to Gloomhaven, and that is Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Now, if you follow this blog or listen to our podcast, you'll know that I am not a fan of Pandemic. And anytime people ask me to recommend co-op games, I skip right over that one and I move on to other games. This should be noted because I strongly recommend Pandemic Legacy as a fantastic two-player campaign game. Now, I gotta admit, our group found some of the twists and turns to be expected. Uh, it's kind of what you th what you think it's going to do, it does. It's still a fantastic journey. Now, I think the game probably plays best with four players, but you can play with two. But what I recommend is each playing two characters, so you have a full team of four, because you're going to need those character abilities, especially later in the campaign. This to me, I find really does seem to be a love it or meh sort of game. Uh, very few people actually hate it, but a lot of people just don't love it. They respect it as a game. I, I find that the uh, the ratings on it really seem to go between like an eight or a nine and a six. That's um, yeah. And the only people who rank it any any uh, you know down at the bottom are the are the the haters who you know there's always some some haters for a there's game. Always some it, that you can pretty much ignore. It really it really does though. The people who don't love it still think it's a solid game. It's just not their type cup of tea. 
And I will also note that it was the number one game on Board Game Geek that you got usurped by Gloomhaven. So it's it's up there in ratings, probably two or three now. I haven't looked in a while and a lot at of the it, top list. A lot of people really consider it um, the sort of the idealized uh, legacy game. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't the first. No, it was Interestingly not. enough. All right, here's one that's a little different. Um, this is Mage Knight. Now, it's a different type of campaign because you're going to tell your entire story, your entire arc, through one play of the game. Like, there isn't a different scenarios or anything. You're just going to sit down and play once. But the individual play of this game is so epic, so long, and I would say engaging, that I feel that it qualifies as a short campaign on its own. Now, this is especially true to me because I've found that most games take multiple sessions. Like, when we play Mage Knight, we set it up, we relearn the rules, because, man, there's a learning curve in this game, and we play for three to four hours, and then we go to bed, and then we get up the next day and we continue our Mage Knight game. Um, it is not an easy game to learn. There is a lot to go on. There's a lot going on in the game. Uh, there's a tutorial mode, and even that might take you up to six hours to play. But, man, it is a very rewarding experience if you have the time to play it. And it's also worth noting, if you are looking for two-player games, that it plays really well at one. So when your partner cancels one night, you can still play Mage Knight without them. Yeah. Now, Star Trek Frontiers is a re-implementation of this. Uh, so if you're more sci-fi than fantasy, this might be uh, the choice for you instead. Yeah, I'll admit I haven't tried that one. I am curious, but the fact that Mage Knight takes 6 to 12 hours to play means it doesn't get to the table that often, and I just don't think a Star Trek theme is going to get it more often to the table for me. And uh, But uh, rating-wise and weight-wise and playtime-wise, they both uh, match up as the same, so uh, okay. if that uh, that means much. Very cool. Uh, here's a game it seems like we've been talking about quite a bit recently, and I, I think that's just coincidence. Uh, Star Wars Imperial Assault. Uh, this is an extremely engaging one-versus-many campaign game set in the Star Wars universe. Uh, Rebellion era, to be specific. With only two players, one player plays the Empire, the other player plays the Rebels. Now, in this case, the Rebel player is going to end up playing more than one hero, but I find it works fine in this game. Like, there's there's not too much to keep track of, and it's not a role-playing game. Like, you're not having to take on the role of multiple characters. You just have to track their cards separately and roll dice separate. What I really dig about this game is how well-balanced it is right out of the box. A lot of these one-versus-many games almost require, like, the overlord player to play like a DM, or else they crush the players. Imperial Assault's not like that. It is actually really well-balanced the two sides, the two factions. You also have the option, though, if you have this game, of downloading the app, and then the two of you can play it cooperatively, with both of you playing against the AI. Now, I'll admit, I personally haven't tried that. Now, finally, you do get the added bonus that Imperial Assault can be played as a two-player-only skirmish miniature war game, which is perfect when you want to take a break from your two-player campaign. Now, the options and the value in this one make it a strong recommendation for any table, uh, and there's just so much content out for it. Yes. Yeah, I was surprised by how long ago we played our campaign. I was sharing pictures for the blog post on this. I'm like, I had to go back to 2016. I'm like, it's been three years since we played Imperial Assault. Now, it is it is a little on the pricey side for the base game, though, is it not? It's yeah, all the Fantasy Flight games, it's it's up there. I don't know the price off the top of my head. Uh, it does fall under the Asmodee map thing, so if you're able to find it for more than 20% off, you've got a real deal because they're not allowed to advertise prices better than 20% off. Okay, because I'm seeing, I'm seeing uh, well, uh, Amazon.com is calling it a list of 99 with a 25% off 
$75 uh, price. Yeah, so 100 bucks. that sounds about right. I was thinking like 80 to 90 yeah. It's probably this. I bought it a long time ago. So, yeah. Up next, I have Mice and Mystics. I have to recommend this one just because of the story. Uh, Mice and Mystics tells a fantastic story. You are in a fantasy medieval kingdom. Someone poisons the king. You are the prince. The evil wizard casts a spell on you and your retinue and turns you into mice. Oddly enough, instead of stepping on you, he then turns his bad guy guards into rats, which I always thought was a little weird. But then you have this epic miniature base game where you're a rat trying to, or a mouse trying to survive against rats and scorpions and bugs and trying to save the king. Um, while it doesn't specifically have character progression and the story is rather linear, there are some aspects of this game and objects that you can get that do carry over from game to game. So this is a game, again, where I recommend that two players each take on the role of two characters. Um, Mice and Mystics also has the bonus of being rather family friendly. So not great, not, sorry, so great for playing with kids. Uh, just don't make the mistake I didn't start too young. Like we started when little G was only six and that was a little too early for, for Mice and Mystics. I, I'm thinking more early teens, um, Later grades, but still grade school, you could probably start it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the community says eight. Uh, the game says six, oddly enough. Yeah, that's uh, where we started. And the community the community has definitely pushed that up till eight, and you're saying even a little older might... Uh, I would think so. Just it, it's, it's not an easy game. Uh, for a more easy family game, I recommend Stuff Fables, but I don't recommend that one at two, or else it would be on this list. No. Now, one thing to note, I jumped ahead a little bit here. Mice and Mystics, I would call an honorable mention, because it does not have all the qualifications that I like in a campaign game, because you don't level up your character. You start fresh every time. Uh, there are things you can unlock as a player that can you can affect later in the game and the story is ridiculously linear it's literally play this chapter then play just chapter then play this chapter so it still has some of those campaign aspects uh also if we just want to take a pause for a second uh ryan's mentioning in the chat that descent second ed of course is the fantasy yep. predecessor to imperial assault and it now has an app for the overlord as well so you've got that option in descent as well now yeah totally true the only reason it's not on my list is i haven't played it I stuck to games I've actually played myself in this case, at least for now. So another honorable mention is Time Stories. Now, if you and your partner dig puzzles and mysteries, take a look at Time Stories. Now, this, again, lacks some of the elements I think are required for a campaign game. It definitely tells a story and a very solid one. And there is an overarching plot you can learn if you play through the expansion missions in order. But the stories are basically standalone. There's no specific rule that says you have to play them in order but if you do you'll notice an ongoing thread now this is a very very slight spoiler um after you finish the first mission it tells you to do something and you do unlock something you can bring over to the next game and every time you finish a mission there is this little reward you get at the end based on how well you did i don't think that's enough spoiler to get anyone mad but if it is i apologize but it is an incentive to do well and it does carry over a bit so there's that slight bit of campaign element there but overall there's no characters like you play characters in the one scenario because the whole point in this game is you go back in time and you infest someone else's body to solve a mystery you play a different character every set and in a different time uh overall it's seems like a pretty good game and it plays really well with two though four players if you get stuck on the puzzles is going to help having more minds but i've heard many people recommend time stories at two just as a good pair experience yeah it's interesting uh 
Board Game Geek does not recommend uh, two. They they really they they say three to four is their ideal with the best at four. So they definitely encourage the extra the extra minds to help out. I guess. See, I've just heard on many podcasts that people like like playing it with their significant other in particular. That they like solving the the, the mysteries together. And that that could actually be one of those things where if you are the 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 Mensa puzzle type. Then, yeah. then the two player is is sort of that you know it gives you the extra thrill of, of being able to work through it without the extra mm-hmm. players. All right, next one, a box almost as big as Gloomhaven but not quite as heavy is Mechs versus Minions. Uh, this is the most well produced game I own. It is truly amazing looking. Everything from the box to the insert to the playing pieces, it's all top shelf. Well, this game does play best at four. It's another one where you can split it, right? So you each play two characters. Now, it's going to be harder in this game because this is a programmed movement game. Now, again, this is an honorable mention because there's no character advancement. And there's nothing that carries over from one game to the next. But it is an ongoing story that evolves. And it has some legacy aspects where you're going to unlock things. You're going to open envelopes to add new rules to the game and there's like even the the check underneath the board to find the secret thing that unlocks this thing it does have those aspects of a legacy game in it which is kind of neat uh so the gameplay does expand as you play through the scenarios and for those not familiar this is of course played out in runeterra which is the league of legends world this is a league of legends board game which when you have $500 million you make, which is more than the entire board game industry combined, you can put out a game that looks that good. So that's it. That's all I've got. Because, see, I got to admit, I am probably not the best person to answer this question, though I gave it my best shot. Because I've never actually played a full campaign with only two players. Uh, most of my campaign game has been with a larger group. And when it's just... Deanna and I, we tend to stick to more strategic games like the Duke or Onitama. And when we want something big and heavy, we'll play something like Fields of Arl. And I don't think we've ever played anything that's going to continue on except going back to when we were dating and we played Hero Quest. So due to this, I did some searching online just to see what I'm probably missing out on. And I found some other really good sounding suggestions for two-player campaign games. Now, I didn't want to mention these yet because I haven't played these. So this is just going off what the internet says. If you can trust the internet. Now, first up, something we sort of already talked about. Yeah, basically, because there's Pandemic Legacy came out. They put out a season two. Now, I have seen way more negative reviews for Pandemic Legacy season two than I have for one. But a lot of people dig, do seem to dig it. The consensus seems to be that it's not quite as good as season one. But the reviews do seem to indicate it's just as good with two players. Now, our Pendega Legacy group moved on to Gloomhaven, so we haven't had a chance to check out Season 2. Well, a lot of people, I think, just haven't played it yet, uh, as the number of reviews for it are a tiny percentage of the number of reviews for Season 1. Yeah, but that's not a time thing. It's been out long enough that people could have. I think they chose not to. Well, it's, it's a matter of whether or not, you know, that some of the people, the, the louder voices have kept people away <laughs> from true. it. Um, yeah, definitely possible. Uh, so that was Pandemic Legacy Season 2, and I just realized we have been terrible at repeating the name of the game at the end of the segment. I'm going to try to catch myself for the rest of the episode. I do apologize. Uh, up next is Charterstone. Now, this is one from Stonemeyer Games that I have heard really good things about. Now, Board Game Geek does say this is best with six, but I found it on every single campaign game suggestion list. When I googled board game campaign games or best board games with a campaign mode, this game was on that list every time under Pandemic Legacy and Gloomhaven. 
Now, I did look up a really good Reddit thread, and there was another Board Game Geek thread that said, when you play with two players, there are rules that let you add Atama, Atomata players. And from what I've read, this is key to enjoying the game with only two. From what I've read, the Atama rules are said to be very nice, clean rules that actually make it feel like you're playing a full three or four player game. Although we've also mentioned here many times, we're just not huge fans of games that make special rules just for certain player counts. So, you know, take that. Uh. Yeah, like I said, these aren't, I haven't tried it myself. Same with all the rest of these games in these sections. I'm, I'm going with other people said, and people seem to like these particular phantom player rules. That was Charter Zone. Up next, I've got the Pathfinder Adventure card game. Now, I haven't played this game. I have played this, but just once, and it was at a public play event at one of the local game stores. Um, it wasn't enough of a play for me to recommend it, but I did see it on a few campaign game recommendation lists online. Now, what I'm not sure at all in this case is how well it plays with two players. Now, the game does say one to four players. Board Game Geek seems to think its best was at least three. Now, I'll be able to tell you this maybe in the future, because I do have a copy of the new edition of this game on its way from Paizo, so I am looking forward to checking it out myself. Look for more in the coming weeks, both here, the blog, and on YouTube. And that was the Pathfinder Adventure card game. Now we have another card game, and that's the Arkham Horror card game. Now this seems like it could be perfect. This is a cooperative living card game where the players are facing off against Eldritch Horrors. The game is designed for two players right out of the box, and it's getting really positive reviews, including a crazy number of award nominations and wins. Uh, actually, reading about this one, I'm like, huh, I might have to pick this up because it's looking really solid. Yeah, I can't say it's something I'd play with my family, but it definitely does look like a, a fun uh, play. And our last recommendation, or my last recommendation that I found online is the Lord of the Rings Journeys to Middle Earth. This one just came out in the last few months. Uh, this one I think is too new to have shown up on most people's lists. Now I have bought a copy of this. Uh, as far as I know, it's in the mail or possibly Han Solo has it. Uh, this is the hottest new campaign game from Fantasy Flight. It's the next game in the whole Descent to Imperial Assault Evolution. This is the, the third game in that series of games. Uh, really because Descent, there was a first edition. Uh, this is set in the Lord of the Rings universe, obviously. Um, I'm pretty sure you won't be able to throw a ring in on the first play. It looks fantastic. Uh, not only that, but Board Game Geek is listing it as best for two players. So this is probably the one recommendation that could be as good or uh, or better than Gloomhaven. Now, I haven't played it, so I don't know. Um, hopefully, we'll find out when the package shows up, and we'll let you know then. Uh, and then finally, something off my wish list, uh, the DC deck building Rebirth uh, drops tomorrow, and it has both campaign scenarios and character development. Apparently, you are actually uh, bringing your hero and, and leveling up your hero as nice. you progress through scenarios. Uh, it, it's really throwing a whole lot of new aspects into this game, uh, and I'm looking to see uh, whether or not I'll be either picking that up soon, although I just... Uh, <laughs> Maybe shouldn't have made that purchase the other day during the sale uh, at uh, Amazon, but yeah. uh, there's some there's some nice stuff on its release that you can get together. Uh, I know if I was at Origins, I'd definitely be throwing the money down. All right, Gen, uh, Con. Gen Con, yeah, Gen Con, yeah. There there was a really good sale on DC deck building games for Gen Con on Amazon yeah. that they launched on Monday. Yeah, I, that, that I'm sure hurt Sean's pocketbook. Yeah, well, I, although I mean, I have to say, buying it at Amazon.com, even you. after shipping. 
the exchange and border money mm-hmm. was still cheaper than if I just bought it and had it delivered the next day from Amazon.ca by enough money to make it worthwhile. To make it worth it, yeah. Heck, even if it's a buck, it might be worth it. But yeah, that is kind of nuts. Yep. So that about uh, wraps up our game. That about wraps up our suggestions for campaign games. Uh, in the chat, we've had a little bit of talk. People, uh, Ryan was mentioning a memoir forty-four campaign for two players. Oh, possibly. See, that was something. You know what? I thought of it after the fact. Like after I'd written the blog post, after I'd finished the show notes for tonight, when I was like cooking dinner, I was making mashed potatoes. I'm like, I bet you, there are a ton of campaign-based war games out there. Hex Encounter, chip-based games where things progress. I don't play those. That's not really my jam. Uh, Memoir 44, I could see, but I don't know because all I owned was the base game. And in the base game, the only campaign there was was that you played Scenario 1 and then you played Scenario 2 and it like progressed the timeline. But there was, again, no carryover. There was nothing that no, it didn't matter who won Scenario 1. It didn't matter how well you did. It just kept going. Uh I do think they did put out a campaign system for that. Uh, Ryan could probably correct me on that. I, I'm sure they probably did. But I know there are war games out there, like Chit Encounter, even miniature-based war games that have campaign elements. Heck, going way back, Mighty Empires for just, Warhammer Fantasy Battle. I was Battle. just about to say, Mighty Empires, that was our two-player. But two players? It worked. Yeah. It worked. I, I mean, we, have, we didn't have, at the time, we didn't have the ability to leave things set up for yeah. weeks and weeks on end. And I think if we had, we probably would have kept going for quite some time yeah but even then i'm sure it's best with three right because with two players it's someone's gonna win two battles in a row and all of a sudden their army's bigger than the other guy and it just kind of steamrolls right that's the problem uh so red meepo ryan uh, ryan has not actually played memoir 44 i played it memoir 44 is a fantastic game if it has a campaign mode it's probably good and like i said there's got to be war games out there uh they probably should be on this list i probably should have Google two-player war games or war games with a campaign mode. I'm sure there, there's got to be, right? Like, that's, that's most war games are supposed to be simulationist. And the whole how many troops you have left should matter. And how your supply lines are doing at the end of one battle should affect your next battle. It's got to be done. It's got to be out there. Just not my specialty. Right. Um, we actually, we, when we were talking about uh, card games, we actually talked about an anti, an anti during uh, legacy living card games could be an interesting <laughs> concept because we'd been mentioning uh, the the anti back in the early days of Magic yep. the Gathering. Now there are um, another recommendation I saw was seventh, seventh C. That's the wrong term. Seventh Continent. Wow, I'm drawing a blank on a game name. That doesn't happen often. Seventh Continent is supposed to be really good, but I couldn't find a lot more info on it playing two-player. I saw a lot of people recommending it as a solo game. Um, and then RPGs. I kind of mentioned it before. I did some looking into it back in the AD&D days. AD&D 2nd Edition, TSR put out a bunch of modules called Challenge, and it'd be Thief's Challenge and Thief's Challenge 2, Cleric's Challenge and Cleric's Challenge 2, Fighter's Challenge and Fighter's Challenge 2, and those were all designed for just playing with one player and a DM, which were really cool, but really what they were meant to do was two things. One, either the rest of the group doesn't show up so you can play, but also to do character backstory, so you would run through all of them with your whole group and then bring the whole group together, which was neat, but to me, like, that's not campaign play. That's almost a one-shot in D&D. I gotta say, like, I could not find a good two-player campaign-based RPG. There are some fantastic ones out there. Um, there was a list of five of them on a website. I'll try to put it in the show notes because I can't remember it right now and I don't want to start typing. 
because that'll pick up on the mic and look it up again. I had it in the article I'd written, and then I cut out the whole RPG section, because I'm like, I can't find an actual recommendation. Uh, and uh, Mage Kill is mentioning that it might not be available yet out of Kickstarter for 7th Continent. Uh, no, you can buy it on their, the whoever the company is that makes it, you can now buy it on their webpage. Because it's one that, if you've listened yes. back to a few yeah. episodes, I talk about my wish list, and it's one of the games I wish I had back. My Kickstarter regrets episode, whatever number that is, I talked about Seven Continent. I can now go buy it. The yeah. difference is I don't have the budget to go yeah, buy core, it. Yeah, Core Box is available on their website for $80 US. Yeah. I don't have 80 bucks US. I, we need many, many more people to back my uh, our Patreon before I'm buying any oh, copies. In- of interesting. Uh, Danielle says she, they only just got their copy from the second Kickstarter. Well, I, from what I understand, they didn't put it live until they were done fulfillment. So it could have been one of those. We now know everyone's got it. Well, everyone except I'm sure there's outliers. But in general, everyone should have gotten it. So they made it live. Right. All right. So that's it. That's it for this week's Ask the Bellhop. If you'd like to read more game, gaming, and game night topics like this, be sure to check out the blog at tabletopbellhop.com and click on Gaming Advice. Uh, if you got questions for us, head over to the website, click on Ask the Bellhop, or just email us, questions at tabletopbellhop.com. We keep growing with the support of fans like you, so if you haven't yet, please take a minute to subscribe, like, rate, review, click on the bell, thumbs up, or share with your friends. Wherever and however you find us, you can help us grow. And that includes iTunes reviews, people. Yes, it's been a while. We haven't mentioned those in a while. We haven't seen an iTunes review in a long time, and we have a one-star review. Come on, because Sean just repeats everything I say. That's obviously what happens on this show. Uh, We need people to offset that one star. Come on. Because I don't repeat everything I say on the uh, Yes. <laughs> we, we could have planned that. That could have been funny. Uh, sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop Weekly in your inbox. Once a week, I'll be sending out an email recapping all the content we released in the week previous. Blog posts, new podcast episodes, reviews, anything else we create. You can sign up at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com or go over to tabletopbellhop.com and click in the sidebar where you'll find a spot to subscribe. Okay, I I feel bad. Extra life planning has been taking up a lot of time lately. We are going to do a Zantico giveaway, I promise. It's it's set up. I've got the thing. We just setting up a giveaway takes time. You got to do like a raffle copter and sign up for accounts and decide it, it takes time. I'm sorry. Sorry for the delay on this one, folks, but you can find our content right there on the uh, YouTube and take a look for yourself at what it is you'll be getting when the giveaway happens. Yeah, we need it soon because we want it to come out before the end of the summer because that's what I personally think this thing's really cool for is for gaming outdoors. Like that, to me, that's the niche this this fits. It's something to throw in your trunk if you're heading to the beach. Speaking of Extra Life, our first big event on the Road to Extra Life 2019 is scheduled and good to go. August 24th is going to be our Extra Life warm-up event hosted from 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. at the CG Realm in Windsor, Ontario. That's right. 12 hours of gaming goodness, all for a great cause. We're raising money for the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. Now, this event coincides with the official Extra Life Tabletop Day. Join thousands of tabletop gamers worldwide raising money for the kids. Now, besides a ton of free family-friendly gaming, we're also going to be doing a few special things for that day. Now, for one, this is going to be our big membership drive, looking to get gamers to sign up and start taking in donations for the cause. In addition to cash donations, we will be accepting donations for our huge Extra Life Live and Silent Auctions hitting in November. You can drop off your gaming and geeky items at any time during the event. 
The cheat jars are going to be out in force. Spend a buck to re-roll a die, draw another card, charge an extra inch, and so on. These have always proved to be extremely popular and makes the event a lot more fun and lighthearted than just a bunch of guys sitting around staring at a table. Watch us here live on Twitch where we'll be streaming the entire event. And if all goes well, we may even ask you to donate and you can just watch the game of your choice. We're looking at multiple cameras and uh, and microphones to uh, see how closely we can bring the event to you and how uh, thoroughly we can bring the event to you uh, in planning for the 24-hour event later. This will be... Uh, so, so don't expect a perfect stream this time. This will be our setup, but we're looking to see how much we can bring to you, the audience, on Twitch. Yeah, this is our warm-up event. This is where we're going to be trying out a bunch of things. The other thing we are going to let you do while watching is cheat for someone at the event. If you don't like how things go, you can cheat for one of the players. And I do like the idea. Other concept is to spend five bucks, I think we're talking about, to be able to pick where one of the cameras will be focused. So if there's a game you want to watch, we'll bring it right to you. Now, if you're anywhere near Windsor, Ontario, on the 24th, that's 24th of next month, we encourage you to come out that day. Uh, sign up to join our team, raise some money, drop off auction items, or just come out, play some games. If you aren't local, we still welcome you to join our team and be sure to watch us as we stream live again. That's August 24th from 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. Eastern. Now, for more information on all of our 2019 Extra Life efforts and our road to Extra Life, you can head over to WindsorExtraLife.com. That's Windsor Extra Life, one word. All right, I finally got one of my Origins game reviews up. I brought home a lot of stuff from Origins, a lot of the games I plan on doing reviews on, plus I owe the reviews to the companies that gave me review copies. I finally sat down and wrote up my thoughts on Go Cuckoo. Now, for anyone who's been paying attention to the podcast, watching our show here live, has heard me talk about this game quite a bit. Um, I've been talking about it pretty much since I got it at Origins, and I think I was tweeting about it from Origins. So I think most of you already know how I feel on this one, but we're still going to cover it just in case you haven't heard it before. Someone's gone cuckoo for go cuckoo. Oh, God. You might get sued by uh, General Mills, is it? Yep. That does uh, the Cocoa Puffs. That's, that's all we need. All right. So what's go cuckoo about? This is a dexterity game designed by, I'm going to apologize now if I pronounce these wrong, Joseph Allure and Victor Batista Iroka. It's featuring art by Gabriel Siviera. It was published by Haba USA in 2016, and interestingly enough, it was released in time for Easter and was meant to be an Easter gift for your kids. The game comes in a tin that's about a foot tall, roughly, and maybe about a quarter of a foot around. Inside, you're going to find a bunch of wooden sticks that really kind of look like pickup sticks. Each of these sticks has the tips painted in one of four colors. There are also 20 cuckoo eggs. A pretty large wooden cuckoo meeple, which I now learned is named Kiki, um, and the instructions for the game. Now you're going to start the game by giving each of the players uh equal number of eggs. Then you're going to drop all the sticks in the container. Extra eggs that you don't spit, you just put off to the side. Uh, on a player's turn, they're going to draw a stick. You're going to look at the stick, and you're going to look at the color on the other side. If it's a different color, you're going to draw a stick with that color. And you keep doing that up to three times. If... The stick you draw matches colors, both red on the end. You're then going to stop, and you're going to put the sticks, I don't even know how to describe this with a showing it, but horizontally across the tin between the other sticks that are sticking out vertically. What you're doing is building a nest. 
after you've placed the amount of sticks you've drawn up to three, if you your last stick was both the same color, you're going to put an egg in. Now, these eggs are heavy. They're basically marbles. They're not round, but they're, they're, they're heavy like marbles. And you're going to try to balance your egg on there. Now, the goal of the game is to play all of your eggs. If it gets back to your turn when you played all your eggs, you have to place the Kiki Cuckoo me Meeple on top. If you're able to do so, you win. Really simply, while you're trying to do that, stuff's going to fall. If an egg falls in, you're going to steal an egg for the player who has the most eggs. If the sticks fall, your return immediately ends. You have to rebuild the nest. That's pretty much it. So basically, you're picking sticks, hoping for a match. If you get a match, you place an egg. Try not to cause anything to drop. Play all your eggs. Place the cuckoo to win. Simple enough, even a four-year-old could play. The thing is, there's something about this game that is fun for people way older than four years old. You know, I think this really this game really hits a sweet spot in people's minds. It's the same reason why most people, even if only for a couple of minutes, will always sit down and play up play with pickup sticks. There's just something raw and physical about it, and not to mention that it hits an engineering button in a lot of people's minds. I can see that. Now, I've played Gokuku with hardcore gamers. I have played Gokuku with my family members. I've played Gokuku with kids. I've played Gokukus with strangers I'd never met before at a pub over beers. I played it with brand new gamers who had only ever played Clue and Monopoly. Uh, one thing that every single one of these plays has had in common is that everyone has loved this game. Most of them, when we finish, are like, where can I get this? Like, this game seems to have some kind of universal appeal. Like, there's just a quality that hooks people, as Sean mentioned. All kinds of people. It's a, it's a quality that transcends age and gaming experience. And actually, I think it might be a variety of qualities, and I'm going to try to break down some of the ones I think it is. Because, in essence, it's a really simple game. Which helps. It's simple to teach and simple to play. At least mechanically and what your options are. Like, there's... Basically, no setup time. Hand out eggs, drop a thing in. And cleanup is actually kind of fun because you're going to take apart the structure you built together. You know, just like watching dominoes or a house of cards you built fall, there's a real thrill just in that. Uh, which leads me to the next part, too, because you are building something. This goes to what Sean basically just said. You are making something physical. This isn't an engine-building euro where you're building an engine out of cards to represent abstract concepts. This is where you build an actual physical nest out of wooden sticks. There's something to be said for having a physical artifact of that nest there in front of you on the table and watching it grow as the game goes on. Plus, well, the themes right there, right? How much more thematic can you get? A game about building a bird's nest where you build a bird's nest. Uh, there's also the fact that the theme is universally acceptable. Accessible, sorry. Everyone knows that birds make nests out of sticks. Like, uh, a child may not get the cuckoo reference about stealing other birds' nests, but they're going to get the theme immediately. Yeah, uh, like a good Pixar movie, it has something for everyone. Playing Go Cuckoo well actually takes some tactics, and here's the, the, the key to me. Uh, there is even a bit of strategy. This is why I think it appeals to adults and gamers. Tactics and in a small part strategy can be important in Go Cuckoo. Choosing what stick to pull is important, especially noticing like load-bearing sticks. But what's even more important is where you put those sticks and where you place your eggs when building the nest. Your tactics are going to change whether you're placing an egg or not. If you're placing an egg, you're going to want to make sure you have somewhere to put that egg. And you probably want someone stable enough to hold it for your turn, but not really any longer than that. Now, if you're not placing an egg, now you're trying to set up those sticks so something falls, whether it's another stick or the eggs. 
Like, I found myself actually planning ahead for my next turn, knowing I didn't get to place an egg this turn, but next turn I probably will, so I'm going to try to set this up so I've got the perfect spot next time. To me, it's these variety of options and actual meaningful decisions that makes Gokuku so much more than just a silly kid's game. Yeah, it, it, it plays differently for anyone who's able to play to play it. Uh, at whatever level level you're able to play, you can read into it that much uh, or go beyond as you're able. Now, I honestly can't say I remember. I can remember the last time I found a game that so many different groups of people seem to enjoy equally. Like Azul, I mentioned being universally acceptable. Yeah, to gamers and people who get that. I can't play Azul with a six-year-old or a four-year-old. I can play Gokuku with a four-year-old or someone who's 86 years old, right? Gokuku is like now part of my kit. Like anytime I go to any gaming event now, I'm bringing it. Like we had the easy mode we've been talking about where we had a brand new gaming event. I had no idea who was going to come out. I had no idea if it was going to be gamers, people I'd met before or not. I brought Gokuku and sure enough, we played it. I brought it to a backyard party hosted by the girl's music teacher because I just thought we might have some time to kill. I brought it to Queen City Conquest. I bring it with me every local game store game night. Like at this point, like I should just probably put it in the van and leave it in there. I obviously, I dig this game a lot. Um, I'd almost say I'm an ambassador for the game at this point. Like, it's a fantastic dexterity game. It's easy to teach, just as easy to learn the mechanics, but it actually rewards tactical play and planning ahead. That's not something you regularly find in a game marketed to kids. I also think it's a perfect example of the fact that Haba is trying to get the word out that their games aren't just for kids, and this is a great example of that. Though it is amusing that this one is from their kids line aimed at kids four and up. Yeah, though the box does say ages 6 to 88 or something like that on it. So they, they obviously started off. I don't know if they actually had started the Game Night game in 2016 when this, the Game Night game brand when this launched in 2016. It's possible that wasn't around yet. And now, Tabletop Gaming Weekly, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here. What games hit the table? Every week, we like to take this look back, uh, take a look at the games we played, any events we attended, or any other cool gaming stuff that happens to be going on. You can catch the blog version of This Week in Review at tabletopbellhop.com under On Our Tabletop. Uh, I had a pretty dry week up until Saturday. Now, Saturday, I helped facilitate an event at one of our friendly local game stores, the CG Realm. Uh, we had a board game designer down, Ryan Eiler. He came down from Ottawa to show off his new game, Quad Heroes. Uh, he's actually now on the road to Gen Con, probably got his booth all set up. He wanted to have some practice demoing the game. Plus, he's originally from Windsor, so he just wanted to stop in and see family and break up the drive. Now, this is a very cool-looking action selection game that uses tumbling, like a dice tumbling, where you have a square character, and the side you turn it on determines what actions you can take. Now, during the event, Ryan and his friends ran a bunch of demo games. Uh, Tech, who's in our chat, actually was doing demos all night, which I'm sure Ryan appreciates that. I appreciate that, too. It was cool to be able to have multiple copies of the game going at once. I think they did a total of six demo games throughout the night, which is pretty impressive because it's not a very short game. I personally didn't play in any, but I did watch a couple, and I got to say the game looks really good. Now, I left with a copy of the game and the expansions, and I look forward to giving a more detailed look. Now, I know you were excited to have Ryan down there. Was there a reason you didn't get a chance to play? Were you just in, too busy enabling other people's games? No, what it was, I knew I was bringing a copy home, and I knew I could play it whenever I wanted. So right. I sat and listened to the Ryan's teach of the game and figured I'll play my own copy on my own time. And that way I was able to 
give games to, uh, play games with people who didn't want to try Quad Heroes or people who had already played it. Now, the demos, while the demos were going, um, a bunch of other games got played. Uh, for me, the first one we played, this was right at the start of the event, we had a five-player game of Chocolatiers. Now, this is another one I picked up from Daily Magic Games, a review copy from Origins. Uh, first time I got to play it. Uh, this I was really looking forward to because it's by Isaiah Vallejo. This is the man who designed Valeria Card Kingdoms. And as far as I'm concerned, put Daily Magic Games on the map, and I really dig Valeria, uh, Valeria Card Kingdoms. Now, this is a complete departure from Valeria. Like, there's, except for the designer's name on the box, I don't think there's anything else similar here. Because this is a thinky filler game where players are drafting cards and playing them in order to create a box of chocolates. Uh, you get multiple, you get two actions on your turn. You can either draft chocolate cards, which think ticket to ride, uh, reserve a two by two sampler tile that'll show, uh, I don't even know how many different types of chocolates were, say six different types of chocolates in different configurations. Uh, you can play the sampler tile you've already previously reserved, but to do that, you have to play chocolates from your hand that match what's in the sampler. Um, or you have these, uh, they look like Ferrero Rochers, however you pronounce that chocolate, but they're wild cards that you can play onto them. Uh, the game ends when someone has a full box, which is a set of six sampler tiles, like in a two by three grid. Uh, points are then rewarded for being the first person to complete the box gets points. And then it's Whoever has um, each of the boxes are with points. So whoever has the most of the low value three and four, four point boxes gets a bonus to com compensate for the people who bought the more expensive ones. And then you just look at majority for all of the different types of chocolates. And that's all based on orthogonal adjacency. Now, there's a neat rule there with the wild cards, because any wild card chocolate, again, they look like Ferrero Rocher's, uh, counts as all of the different chocolates adjacent to. And... That was really neat because it really changed how things connected in these boxes of chocolates for, for scoring. Uh, but you only get three wild cards. And if you don't spend them, they're worth points. Uh, I need to play this more to get more information out. But I got to say, I was surprised by how much depth and thinking was involved in this and surprised in a good way. Like it, like you look at it, you're like, eh, I'm drafting, getting chocolates. No, like you're sitting there going, Okay, how many uh, blues does she have? Okay, and how many does Dave have? And if Dave puts his wild card, he's going to have seven. And the only ones up are, oh, is it going to be? Like, it's those kind of decisions. It's that kind of decision space. Uh, reminded me a lot of a game I love called Lanterns, though different enough that, like, the you could see owning both. Uh, I do have to get more games in. You will see a full review like I just did on Gokuku, but it'll take some more plays before I get to that. Yeah, I know you've been positive about this after reading through the rules, so it's good that it holds up on the table as well. Uh, I'm seeing some comments saying that uh, you want to stick with four, because with two skilled players at it, uh, it comes down to card flips uh, oh. a lot of the time. So okay. it, it loses a little bit of strategy when you go to the lower player counts, but uh, still sounds like at least, an, uh, at the very least, an enjoyable game. 20 minutes or so? About, uh... so we were long. I'm gonna say we were closer to 45, but it was five of us who had never played, including me. Uh. Like I taught the game. Basically, I had to read the rule book out loud at that point. Like I had read the rules, but we I'd never even seen the physical paid pieces. That's one of the things I. In order to teach games, you should sit down with the components in front of you and read the rules. I didn't do that before this event, right. so kind of my bad. I had done it one night when I plot the game out, but we didn't play, so just hadn't refreshed my memory before sitting down to play. Uh, that was Chocolatiers from Daily Magic Games. 
Up next, we played Raiders of the North Sea, and I finally got to try four players. Uh, this is my first time playing four players. I, I'm loving this game. Uh, this was just as good with four as it was with two as it is with three. Um, just to, to talk the praises of this game, Deanna has now declared it her favorite two-player game. So that's just showing how good this game has been going with us. The one thing that was neat with playing for four players, and I mentioned this last time I talked about the game, is you don't change anything when you change the player count. Like, the board setup is the same. The number of cards in the game is the same. The amount of resources is the same. Everything's the same. You just have more players playing. Well, the whole game's about rating, and there's so many rating spots. Well, with four players, that's a lot more people competing over the same number of spots. So that was interesting, because those disappeared much quicker with four players than they did with two. Like, you just... I did not get as many raids in as I thought I would. So it really changed the overall feel of the game, but not in a bad way. It was just as tight a game. It just felt different. I am really loving this one. This is probably going to be my next published review. I've now played it at all four different player counts. What, sorry, three different. There's no solo play. I played it all three different player counts. I'm up to six total plays. I, I'm probably going to be putting words on paper in the next couple of days. Well, I expect we'll keep hearing about this one for a while, judging by the rave reviews we've been getting so far. All right. After finishing Raiders of the North Sea, we sat down to some Coney dogs. Uh, Jeremy has the recipe now, and they're bringing back the original recipe they were using. I got to admit, they're back to good. I was impressed by the Coney dogs. Um, then we sat down, and I broke out something new again. So this was a totally new-to-me game. This is Bastille from Queen Games. Uh, this is another review copy I picked up at Origins two months ago. Now, it's a four-player game all about the French Revolution by Christopher Bear. It's an action selection game where players are placing influence tokens on seven different action spots around Paris. Uh, players start with three low-level tokens, and one of the spots you can pick out of the seven lets you level up the tokens to be more effective, which I thought was kind of neat. Now, all the spots have two levels of reward. One is for the player who plays the token with the most influence, and the other is for everyone else. So the person who plays the highest influence is going to get the good reward. Everyone else is going to get something. Uh, some of the spots are more effective if you play higher influence tokens. Like, for example, when you get money, you get your influence times two win coins. Now, players are using these coins to do a variety of things uh, based on the seven different spots. You can get money. You can recruit allies to your faction. You can equip those allies with weapons. You can explore the catacombs under Paris. Uh, you can improve your level. You can also... Uh, there's a track in the Bastille. You can improve your track level in the Bastille track. Um, all of this is done to get points. These points are rewarded for a ton of different things. Like this is a point salad game, despite not being a Steppenfeld. Uh, there's progress tracks. There's set collection. There's set majority. Uh, it even has a bag pull system where you're pulling cubes out of a bag. There is a lot going on in this game. And at this point, I've only played once. So I'm going to save all the details for a future review. Now, what I will say now is that I love the look of the game. I This came out during our unboxing video, which I don't think is live yet. Sean will probably mention that in a minute. Uh, we do have it recorded. We just had to get it out there. Uh, this game isn't amazing due to beautiful artwork, but rather having very clear, easy to see, and effective board artwork and iconography. Like, even with my aging eyes, I could see everything I needed to see clearly from across the table. Something I really appreciate. Now, as for the game, uh, so far, it seems like a solid medium weight game. This is not on the heavy end, uh, but it's not light either. It's It seems like a solid medium game. I really like the way the influence system worked, and I like that it seemed like there were a lot of potential different paths to victory. But with only one play, like, I really, I, I have no final verdict at this point. I am looking forward to playing it more. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a little thing to younger players, but to us older folks and those with visual troubles, uh, it's a clean, clear, readable board makes mm -hmm. a huge difference. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, a lot of people uh, seem to think, you know, this is one of those ones that came in under the radar at Essen. Uh, so I think uh, it, it's got very few ratings on BGG. Uh, I think it's only going to go up for a while. Yeah, that's actually, to be honest, that is the reason I have the game is I had gone to the booth at Origins and I had asked them, I said, the, the game I wanted to review was gone. I really, really royally wanted Merlin, which is a Steffenfeld game with three different rondelles. Oh, I wanted that game bad, but they sold out. So without being able to get that, they tried to sell me on Copenhagen. I think I shared my thoughts on that, the origin recap, just not for me. And I told them that. I said, you can give me Copenhagen, but my review is going to be, this seems cool, but not for me. And they went, well, how about Bastille? Because we think this is a hidden gem and it'd be great to get more people talking about this game. So even Queen Games themselves seem to think that it, it just, it got missed somehow. Mm -hmm. So after Bastille, the finally game, final game we got in right at the end of the night was Gokuku. Uh, at this point, you heard my review already. You don't need to know anymore. Check out the review. Listen to the review. Hit back. You can hear it again. Uh, we did have two new people, and of course, they loved it. Say no more. Now, last week, I talked about how Deanna and I had a kid and mom-free night, and we played some games of the Duke. Well, something shockingly amazing happened because this past Sunday, literally one week later, we got another night out to ourselves. Since we had such a good time last week at the Sandwich Brewing Company, we went back. Uh, this time we tried their charcuterie boards. Oh my God. Best in the region. So, excuse me. So good. Yeah, I'm still paying for it. Uh, no, it was really good. Uh, last week I brought the Duke with us. This week I wanted to do a comparison. So I grabbed Yarl. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jarl is a follow-up to the Duke that was released as a tie-in with the Vikings TV series back when that was a big deal and everyone was talking about it. Uh, it uses the same mechanics of the Duke. Like, literally, it says on the box, powered by the Duke. Uh, my first impressions of Jarl when I got it was that it was significantly heavier than the Duke and somehow less fun. And we didn't grab the game often because of that, and I wanted to test that theory. So we started off with Jarl. Uh as the first game we played the night and both my wife and I were immediately struck by how much more complicated the actual pieces are. Like there's just more symbols on every piece. And in addition to that, every piece seemed to have different types, like more types of them on one piece. Whereas in the Duke, most pieces had like one gimmick to them. This is like, oh, this guy can do these four different things. Like just as an example, the Jarl themselves, the Duke tile, on one side, moves horizontally in a straight line. On the other side, moves vertically in a straight line. That's it. That's what the Duke does. Well, the Jarl has four different movement options, just straight moves. It has four jump options that all move like uh, knights, so they're not straight jumps. And it has a shield in front of it. That's just on one side. The other side has two shields to the flanks, has two moves straight and back, and four jumps that, again, are knights, but the opposite moves. Like, it's just ridiculous how much more complicated just the Arl is and how much easier they can get out of trying to be captured because they can jump. Now, shields are a thing in this game. Like, I, I didn't watch Vikings. Maybe Vikings, the TV series, everyone carried a shield and lots of shield blocking happened because, man, they like shields on these tiles. Most of them have shield icons, and then they have a new one, which is, it's the outline of a shield, which is, which is a square. The outline works to protect the piece that's in the spot under the square, 
Whereas shields in the Duke and in this game protect the tile that has the shield on it. So this is a way one tile can protect another tile. With all these shields everywhere, it is so hard to capture anything. And then they added another thing. This is totally new to Jarl and not in the Duke. Our moves and jumps that work the same as a base game, but you can't capture. And they're just like smaller versions. They're like a dot or a circle. And they're tiny. And it means you can move there, but you can't move there. There's another piece. Now, what all this combines to mean is that, wow, there are way more tactical options in Jarl. And most of them are defensive. So you have a much more strategic game, but a way, way longer game. And that's where I think Jarl fails, over the Duke, at least for my wife and I. Our Duke mashings are fast and furious, and we'll often sit down and play like two to five times, if not like ten times in one night. Uh, like, there is some randomness in the Duke, but it's mitigated by that fact that if that lucky draw happens, or that put you go for the pusher luck and you get it, it's like, oh, I lost, but let's play again, right? Like, you have that time. And in the time it takes to play one game of Jarl, we can usually finish two or more games of the Duke. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sort of scanning through the reviews on BGG right now, and really, it's, it's a, a very sharp dividing line, uh, and it comes to basically those shields. Uh, the Jarl is a tactical, long-term planning, think-ahead game with a much more complex, uh, you know, keep in your head all the possible movements concept. Yes. Uh, whereas, again, as you, as you were just saying, that Duke is that, that, that fast chess with a random aspect in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that's, and so if the people who really like that long-term strategic tactical planning, the shield aspect of the Jarl is what gives them that, and they seem to really thrive on that. Uh, but the the fans of the Duke, who like what the Duke offers in that quick gameplay, definitely prefer the Duke and and sort of yeah. complain about that same aspect of Jarl. Yeah, like to, to be honest, I think Jarl is probably the better gamer's game, right? Like if you have a, a chess grandmaster friend who loves chess and the strategy of it, they're going to you love Jarl and they're going to hate losing in the Duke when that one random tile happens to kill you. It's less random, more tactical, more strategic. But I got to say, for at least my wife and I, and it sounds like most fans of the Duke, it's just less fun. Uh, it's my wife in particular basically said, I don't need to play Jarl ever again, which probably means I'm not going to play Jarl very much. So if you want to watch Facebook, you may see a copy of Jarl up for sale at some point soon. Uh, what I do want to try at some point, we haven't done it, is mix the two, but I have a feeling it's not going to work. Like, Jarl's pieces are just too dense and defensive, and I don't think they're going to work well against the Duke. And D does mention that part of it is the Duke is a drinking game, which is not necessarily the best for way for a uh, thinky-think strategic game very true very true yeah it's when we the nights we play the duke are not the let's sit down and play a heavy strategic game nights for us that is true uh so how about a look ahead what have you got planned for the coming week uh not a ton of stuff going on there is no local event there's nothing i'm hosting this weekend uh we will have gloomhaven on friday night that's not something we talk about on the show anymore but it is still going on you can still watch us live 8 30 p.m eastern time um 
I don't even remember what we're doing next. We just learned how to breathe water. That's what happened in our last episode. So I'm not going to get into all the details, but you can follow up on that. Uh, the other thing that might be happening this weekend is Cat and Tori, who we do play Gloomhaven with, our free Saturday night. And I have an awful lot of games I need to get more plays in to review. So I don't know exactly what that's going to entail. Um, it may, may, we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. But Cat and Tori are, are probably coming over Saturday night and we're going to be playing some games. I just don't know exactly what yet. Mm-hmm. So before we move on to uh, the end of the show and closing things up, was there anything else going on in the chat room? Well, you know, some people are, again, we were talking about the Yarl a lot. And, uh, and actually, before that, uh, Ryan is mentioning that Chocolatiers needs a chocolate edition. Yes, a legacy edition, just like Catan. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and Dee was mentioning that, that that was something I guess you were discussing as a possible, you know, Christmas uh, Christmas sort of thing. Make your own, do your own, co- make your own copy of, uh, you know, you just... Yeah, it, it was talked about. So, um, another thing I, I should have pointed out, I don't remember the name of it, but we're going to make it jealous here, is Tori is going to force us Saturday to play Crisis or something. Yep. I can't remember the name of it. There, there's something. And I'm like, Sean's going to be jealous. We're playing it. My phone's on... Uh, Crisis, something DC deck building. Well, I've got, I've got four of the crises. I've only actually played two of them so far, but I think we've got, we've got three or four of them. I'm not sure which ones. So, so yeah, there, there's something Tori's been wanting to play forever, and I agreed. I'm like, yeah, we'll play that. So that's that's gonna happen. I forgot about that. Deanna mentioned that. Yeah, Chocolatiers. I, I, it was surprising. Like I, like it's one of those games you start playing. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty simple, and you're like, oh wait. And then you play a couple turns, like, oh, wait. And then you do something, oh, you're like, oh, okay, now I get it, right? So that's that's one of the main things. I'm like, I need to play it more. I do worry it's going to be samey. Like, it's it, there's not a lot of variety in that game, I don't think. Like, it's it's all random stuff. So yeah, we'll like that's, that's where, I, they, where people were saying, you know, when it gets into that two-player two, get, two mode, if you're both used to playing the game and familiar with it, it yeah. it's it's a card flip game. And so that's- I'm gonna guess it. And any the problem is it's it's the set collection thing. I personally don't think any set collection or area control game should ever be played with two players, because it's always haves or have nots. One player gets it or the other player gets it, and they're gonna steamroll. Whereas at least if there's three players, you got that that three way. You get a few, you get a few, and I get a few. Yeah. So it's not direct competition. I get it or you get it. I I personally almost refuse to play area control or area majority games. It seems silly to call a chocolate game area control, but it is. You're literally adding up who has the most of these chocolates touching each other. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we're talking about Jarl a bit, uh, where it just sort of seems ne- needlessly complicated. Oh, uh, needlessly complicating an elegant, simple tactic game. Uh, Ryan was mentioning it seems like a solution in search of a problem. So... I- to, like I said, I think there are people out there that would love it. Yep. Uh, to, to name names, Charles, I bet you would kill to play Yarrow over the Duke <laughs> and, and would hate the Duke for all the reasons I like it. Yep. For all the, the, the quick, the, the gotcha victories, right? The, those, the, that's not going to happen very often at Yarrow. Yep. But man, just even just playing, like trying to learn how to move the pieces and like, what's this mean? Like it was all the same symbols. Like there's a symbol cut with a skull. And if your guy's on the skull, he can't be captured or moved in any way. And Deanna managed to move it so that, or I, someone moved it. So it's like their Yarl was under the skull. So the other player couldn't win unless they took out the thing with the skull. And like, it it just, it's complicated. It's, it's difficult. It's, it requires a lot more thinking. Right. And that's not always what you want. Fair enough. And now a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our Patreon backers. Their support helps make this show possible. Brian Kurtz, thanks for being with us since the beginning. 
Yuhol Rutila, thank you. Duran Barnett, thanks. John Carney, a.k.a. Evil John, thank you. Wayne, the Star Wars guy, Humfleet. May the force be with you, Wayne. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift is coming to an end. We're going to have to lock those front doors. Though the doors to the lobby are closed, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. You can also find us on Board Game Geek, Guild 3347. Drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. If you like the content we're providing and would like to support our continued efforts, please consider tipping the bellhop at patreon.com forward slash tabletop bellhop. Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to hit your podcatchers and YouTube at 2 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday. You can also catch Bellhop's Tabletop Twitch Friday nights at 8.30 when we mostly play Gloomhaven, but now and then we'll surprise you with something else. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us. Hang around and join us in the penthouse suite for the Off the Books After Show. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you, and game on.